This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Butnick, and I will be bringing you today's episode. You'll hear from my co-hosts, Mark Oppenheimer and Liel Leibovitz, in a bit. Today, we're bringing you the second installment of The Minion, Abby Pogrebin's great new series for Tablet. We're also talking to Allison Josephs of Jew in the City about her work getting Hollywood to portray Orthodox Jews with more accuracy and depth. But first, it's that time of the year fundraising time. It's been a big year for us. Since our last fundraising drive, we premiered Daryl Horn's bold and brilliant series, Adventures with Dead Jews, showcased the chilling series, Radioactive, the Father Charles Coughlin story, and walked you through Elul and Counting the Omer with Kylie Unell. Liel's daily Talmud podcast, Take One, is nearing its 700th episode. And through it all, we've kept your unorthodox feed filled with fascinating interviews entertaining news of the Jews items, and endless banter from us three Jews with infinite opinions. Our production team might make this look easy, but it's a tall order and it takes a lot of resources. As you might know, Tablet is a nonprofit organization and we've asked for your support in the past. But we're hoping that you'll show your support for Unorthodox and all our other Tablet Studios shows. We're doing something very different with our fundraiser this year. Each of us, Mark, Liel, and I, are curating a special mystery gift valued at around $250. Each gift box will include things we love and products we think you should have. There are only three boxes, one from each of us. For every $100 you donate, you'll be entered for a chance to win one of the boxes. And don't worry, you'll get to choose which one you want. Three winners will be randomly selected at the end of the fundraising drive. So please go to tabletm.ag slash mystery box to donate. And don't forget to choose your favorite host. I mean, the host whose mystery box you'd like to win. I know what you're thinking, mystery gift boxes. I had to get the guys on the line to discuss. So it's fundraising time. Mark and Liel, what do you think of this? So it's not new that people have tried to gamify <laughs> giveaways. I think This American Life did the one where Ira Glass went out on the street and like tried to have heart to heart talks with people about why they weren't giving more. And, you know, we ourselves have had little raffles here and there and stuff. But I have to say, I'm really excited. I mean, maybe it's it's the narcissist in me, but I don't think so. I think that- You mean podcaster. We, the, right, maybe it's the person in me who thinks other people want to hear the sound of his voice as much as he does. but. You know, if we've learned one thing over the past seven years, it's that if people stick with us, it's because they feel some sort of personal connection. And when we go out on the road and when we get mail and we get calls, we feel that connection right back with them. And so the idea of not just choosing a book, which we've done in the past, but actually curating a special gift box, like nobody in my family, my wife and kids don't want the Mark Oppenheimer curated special gift box, <laughs> but I actually think some fan might, and it just makes me giddy. Here's my insight into this. Probably my favorite episode of this year's show is the one where we went to Union Square and asked people if they were Jewish so we could do the, you know, Chabad Lubavitch thing and get them to lay the fill in or take Shabbos candles. All right, I'm going to get this guy with the Mets hat. Hello, fellow Mets fan. Excuse me, are you Jewish by any chance? Oh, I wish I was. Well, Go Mets. Excuse me, sir. Are you Jewish? And the thing I learned as a six foot five gentleman of, shall we say, noble proportions with a beard and a little bit of a crazy look is that everyone said no. I mean, there, there were like visible Hasidic men who I asked, excuse me, are you Jewish? And they're like, no. 
I, I just converted just so I don't have to talk to you. So this to me is a very elegant approach. You could have the best of me without actually having to have any of me. Uh, it's just the essence of me, which is terrific. Again, something that I think my family, I think every member of my family would much rather have me in a box than me in person. <laughs> Stephanie, are you are you as pumped as we are? I'm excited about this. I'm feeling a lot of pressure about like how we're going to distill our our essences and maybe not even our like our our show essences too, right? Like what we're going to put in there cuz it it's got to be good. If you've watched the movie 7, you know what I'm putting in my box. Oh, what's in the box? What's in the fucking box? Sorry, Gwyneth Paltrow. Please no. Please no. Stephanie, do you want me to help there? I will I will take that weight off your shoulders. I'll tell you what you should put in the box and you'll tell okay. me if I'm even close. Okay. I've never heard you as happy as when you discussed bat mitzvah themes in Great Neck circa, you know, <laughs> <laughs> circa 20 years ago. So I think that you're going to find an old school t-shirt that says, what was it? Like I, I had a gourmet meal at Stephanie's bat mitzvah. Was <laughs> Did I get that right? Was it food themed? That was no way. I didn't have a theme. But that's you actually great. Okay. I love that idea. It's, a, it's like a bat mitzvah theme. A B mitzvah theme. We love it. Um, so I think there's going to be a retro t-shirt that somehow harks back to your childhood in Great Neck. I think there will be something Taylor Swift related because she is your name buddy as you are Stephanie Taylor Butnick. I love this. And Mark, I mean, look, is your is the box itself going to be corduroy that it's delivered in? Oh, no, 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 no. I'll, I'll tell you exactly what's going to be in Mark's box. Sure, okay. it'll be some corduroy related something, maybe a tie with a bulldog on it or some other preppy Yaley thing. But I think the majority of the box, and this is one of the things that I like best about my dear friend Mark Oppenheimer, would be B and C list celebrity memoirs. I'm <laughs> talking, you know, Peter Cetera in his own words. I'm talking Getty Lee. I'm talking Jenny Garth. From You're talking Andrew Ridgely. You're talking. <laughs> the, best, the best of Moby. Just kind of tell all memoirs from people who had like three and a half minutes of fame and have been long forgotten. A genre you love. Liel, and yours would be like the dictator book club, right? Like the books you read on airplanes to scare people away from you. Mine would probably be illegal to deliver in 47 states. I think there will be. Can you mail a little a little nip of whiskey through the mail? I think it's going to be more legal, than right? a nip. That's, these are going to be more than a nip. Than I have think up to a two hundred fifty dollar value. These these gift boxes. I'm actually going to. This is, by the way, my my favorite gift I ever received. I think, or one of my favorite gifts I ever received from a listener, uh, happened in a live show in which I was handed a jar of moonshine with uh, with a cheerful warning. Don't worry, it's not that combustible. <laughs> And then I think the American side, the side you immigrated for, can't cannot be summed up better than with a Mets hat. Can I just say also, you know, we've run a few fun drives before, and I think one of them we set a target for the amount of money, and we we raised it. And another one we said we want a thousand donors. We said we don't care how much money, but we want a number of people to step up. And I believe that number of people did step up. And then we sort of, while we were on this incredible roll, not only did the pandemic intercede in our own production schedule and our own calendar, but we also recognized that, you know, people, it was a weird time to ask for money and people, there's a lot of fear um, about whether people are going to have jobs. And some people in certain professions were hit super hard. We are back and we recognize that not everyone is 100% back to where they were, 
But the podcast has a fan base that has egged us on and pushed us through. And, and we're going to give you things that you need. We're not, we're not just going to be solipsistic assholes like we are literally every other day of the year, which is why you love us and listen to us. Well, every Thursday, at least. Every Thursday. We're actually going to, to be here for you. We're, we're going to think what it is that we think you need and want and will make something special happen. I think that's great. I also think that like this concept is replicable. I like to think of our donor drive is like the beginning of the Yom Kippur appeals, uh, where, where just when everyone's synagogue like asks you for money during the high holidays. Which we accept your forgiveness for everything. Yeah, you just, right. yeah. Every just, way you've wronged us this year. I like the listener. little tabs you could rip off. Not only that, first of all, of course, we, we welcome any donation. Uh, but if our threshold is to be entered in this particular sweepstakes, it has to be a hundred dollar gift. But I also think that like rabbis, like synagogues should steal this idea. Like you can get yes. like the cantor, whatever, bah. like you can choose which clergy or administrator whose mystery gift you want. Like, I think we should just, everyone should be doing this. That old guy who shows up at 1157 just in time for Kiddush, the JFK, the just for Kiddush, that guy should curate a box for you (laughs) if you are selected after having donated to the Yom Kippur appeal. So here, we're starting like the unorthodox Olympics right now. We three are in competition. There's going to be one mystery box for each of us that's given away. We are going to be looking to see who gets the most I want to say in advance (laughs) that I believe this election was rigged. All my fans should not accept the results. (laughs) The last time we gamified it this way, didn't Liel win? Because it was, isn't that how he got his, his middle name? Oh, no, I lost. He lost because he had the most votes, so he had to get a new middle name. And I think the voters chose Liel, Liel, Leibowitz, Leibowitz. So his full name is his middle name. I would like to put in a pitch for me, for people to check me off as the host they'd like a goodie box from, because I think I reliably, I I don't think I ever win these things because I feel like there's, and I'm I'm not complaining here, but I feel like there's a special fan base for Stephanie and Liel. And I feel like, um, I feel like I'm everyone's second choice. With ranked voting, I think I might have a shot. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just putting a pitch for me. I also feel like your goodie bag is going to be like the most practical. Like there, there's going to be some like real down to earth stuff in there that you can use I mean, in your everyday yes, life. But Liel's not wrong that it will also be filled with ghost written <laughs> memoirs by B-list celebrities from the 90s. <laughs> but you need those. I mean, that's the thing is I actually consider that yeah. a highly utilitarian gift. Yeah. <laughs> Mine's going to be like a little flashy, a little sparkly. There will be some razzle dazzle. There might be some bedazzling in there. our first guest. You heard Abby Pogrebin on our show earlier this summer as she previewed her new tablet magazine feature, The Minion. The Minion is a series of moderated roundtable discussions about the state of the Jewish community in America from a variety of perspectives. The first installment featured LGBTQ Jews. The second installment is focused on Orthodox women. As you'll hear, that label encompasses a wide range of identities and beliefs. Here's Abby Pogrebin with the latest Minion. The Minion is a new series at Tablet, which is basically moderated roundtable discussions about the state of the Jewish community in America from a variety of perspectives. And this 
month, we are looking at Orthodox women, which means we gathered at least 10, in this case, 12 Orthodox women from the Bronx to Skokie to just talk about what it means to live an Orthodox life as a woman however they define that. It was amazing to me that even the word orthodox was very uncomfortable for many of them in the sense that they don't like one word to describe them. They don't want to be boxed in by one label because I asked them to define themselves and some would say orthodox and some would say modern orthodox and some said yeshivish, hashidish, chabad, modern orthodox, to the right modern orthodox. It was almost like they were pushing back from the very start as to any label at all. But that said, what unites them is they all would say they are oriented towards serving God in the way that is meaningful to them. It was absolutely the case that the range of ages informed perspective. So we have everyone from an 18-year-old to a 73-year-old. We have, you know, someone is from Staten Island, another person is from New Mexico. I would say if there is one overall takeaway from the Minion conversation so far, LGBTQ Jews and now Orthodox women, it's that be careful what you assume. Just as that joke applies to Jews' three opinions, every Jewish experience is individual and very specific. And I think anyone reading this is going to be surprised. Their assumptions will be upended. And that's what it means to live a Jewish life, to pay attention and to be surprised. The latest installment of The Minion is up on Tablet Magazine. I hope you'll check it out. Hi, my name is Lauren. I'm 43 years old. I guess I would consider myself an observant Sephardic Jew. We don't really use the word Orthodox, but I follow Halakha. My name is Devorah. I live in New Mexico. Um, how would I describe myself? I guess Chabad. I'm from Brooklyn. I am 52. I hate all the labels. If I had to pick one, I would pick Orthodox, but I'd much rather say that I'm mindful. I consider myself to the far right of modern Orthodox without being yeshivish. I think if I were to put myself in a label, I guess I would say open Orthodox. I consider myself to be an Orthodox Hasidic Jew. Chabad, if you will. What about modesty is important or meaningful to you personally? I grew up with Tzmeas, so we were encouraged to cover ourselves up. And to me, it's about keeping what's most precious, sacred, and private. We, not, we never exposed our bodies to anybody except, you know, our husbands. And it's just the idea of, you know, like a diamond in an enclosed case put away. Like, it's just what's really the most sacred and the most precious, just being hidden from the public. And it's also the idea of the wig is also we get married and it's a new level of yes, it's a new level of, of hiding what's most precious and reserving it only for our husbands. I didn't grow up Orthodox and didn't always dress with suits. And so now I don't have to think about like tugging at your clothes. Is my shirt too low? Is it too high? Is this too high? Is that like it's like there's so much mental space that gets taken up by the thought of thinking about like, are my clothes okay? Do, do, are other people staring at me? I know everything is right and everything is covered and I'm not going to be embarrassed. And so then I can go and peacefully go about my day and think about more important things than my clothing. I'm the oldest in this group and I grew up at a time of rising um, awareness of women and the feminist movement 
And I grew up in a home where my mom wore shaitel and my rebellion was to wear jeans. And so the feminist movement influenced me on what I felt was my comfort zone. And being behind a one-way mechitza just didn't work for me. And so as a married woman and a mother of three and a daughter, I evolved in that way in to promote a certain kind of a voice for my daughter. So I, at the moment, have two teenage daughters who do use social media. And it is a very big concern of mine. There's no question that the images and the presentation that's on social media is very particular and very high pressure. And I think that in terms of Jewish dress, I think that that because it's in the conversation about what's appropriate to wear and what you feel good in and every item of clothing is a discussion of what is appropriate. I hope that there's some balancing of what the typical image is on social media or even out in the world, as opposed to what we do and what we value in our home. We stay away from social media. They know what it is, but we really don't have access to it. In my opinion, it's a tremendous waste of time. It's, you know, spending your life comparing other people's possessions and private lives. And it just doesn't seem healthy at all to us. And we really try to just focus on you know, the life in front of us and not the screen. You see the difference, you know, the quality time, you can't compare that. I have a pretty large social media presence and I'm on both Facebook and Instagram. And for me, it has developed a community of people where I can share my life and my Torah. Now, my children are older and I understand all the, I teach seventh and eighth graders. I completely understand the dangers of social media for them. But for adults, I think it can offer for many a very specific community. And I I think personally, just the connections that I've made in that way have been very meaningful. So let me just ask for those to raise your hands if you are personally satisfied with the role of women in Orthodox Judaism. I see Tehillah, Tavora, Marianne, yes. Alani, yes. Shoshi, yes. Leah, yes. Mayan, yes. Anna is, is maybe sort of in between. Lauren, in between. Shira, not raising their hand. Galia, not. I am satisfied with the role of women, but I actively push the envelope in what I do because I went to Shiva Maharad and got Smicha to be a female Orthodox clergy and not without some pushback, not so much in my community, but so it's, it's both things. I'm comfortable, but I'm also, I, I will push it to be comfortable for me and other women. But there are still red lines, even for you. Yes, there are red when lines. When it comes even. to a minion, when it comes to mechitza, you are not yes. playing with men. Yes, those are those red lines. And the interesting thing is that the red lines are more of a problem with my colleague who are to the left of me, because I am a feminist and it's hard to reconcile the idea of a feminist and then who would also choose to be in a space that's segregated, even though I'm making that choice. What is one thing you want people to know about Orthodox women? Everything is available to you. We are doing this by choice. Nobody's forcing us to do any of this because I get that a lot. Um, I would say not to judge Orthodox women on the surface. I think there's so much discussion about what women wear. And there. I think there are assumptions about what everything else means in their life based on what religious symbols they're wearing. And I think that's a big mistake. My commitment to HaKadosh Baruch who shapes my choices 
but even the restrictions are liberating. And my life as an Orthodox woman is rich and exciting and rewarding and meaningful. And in some ways we are like everyone else. In some ways we're not, but facing life head on and making choices. There is a lot of broad strokes being painted, a lot of broad brushstrokes being painted on Jews to the right, whereas there is a lot of space, love, and acceptance given to Jews to the left. I just want people to make the same space, time, take the same energy to understand those to the right of them as they would to those to the left of them. There's a lot more to this conversation, and you could read it all at tabletmag.com minion. There's an honest discussion about how participants feel about female clergy, plus a moment where Abby gets called out for focusing too much on the issue of modesty and clothing. are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. Next guest is Allison Josephs of Jew in the City, a website and organization dedicated to changing negative perceptions of religious Jews and making Orthodox Judaism known and accessible. She joined us to discuss the work she's doing to promote accurate and positive representation of Orthodox Judaism in Hollywood. Here's me and Mark talking with Allison Josephs. Allison, Thank you so much for being on Unorthodox. Sure. Thanks so much for having me. You are in the midst of a really exciting project having to do with accurate representations of Jews in Hollywood and the entertainment industry. But that's a pretty recent project for you. And I want you to talk about the work that you've been doing with Jew in the City and how that started. Give us, for people who don't know about your past decade or so of work, give us the story. Yeah, so the story is that I was raised to be a proud Jew. I grew up in northern New Jersey. And that sort of looked like, you know, high holidays, Hebrew school, marry someone Jewish, have two to three kids, eat bacon cheeseburgers. That was sort of like what that looked like. And I was also raised, honestly, to like dislike Orthodox Jews, look down on them, kind of like too Jewish, too much, too misogynistic, too backwards. When I was eight, a father in my school went crazy, killed both of his kids and himself. And this basically launched me into this like existential crisis of realizing that I don't know why I'm alive. I don't know why we're here. 
I assume my parents, who are successful people, must have a plan. And when I ask them over, you know, big old brunch the day after the triple funeral, why we exist, they just stared back at me. And so this was kind of a scary realization to make. Uh, I couldn't really put, you know, uh, the cat bag in the box once that came out. And so I tried to not think about the fact that life seemed to add up to nothing, but like it sort of kept creeping up on me. And so accidentally, when I was uh, almost 16, I met a modern Orthodox teacher at the after-school Hebrew high we were sent to, to meet the nice Jewish boys. Um, and I was expecting this man to be, you know, a rock-throwing woman subjugating extremist. And instead, he was this nice, normal guy living in the world, you know, contributing to society. And he had something I didn't have. He had a, a meaningful life. He had a framework of faith. And this was very appealing to me. And the truth is that what I realized at that point was a lot of my understanding of the Orthodox community was based on so much of what I saw in media. I had never actually met an Orthodox Jew personally in real life. So much of the judgment came about due to headlines, due to uh, TV shows and uh, books and movies. And I had formed this whole opinion without any personal experience. So I started on a journey of you know my own sort of learning and growth and observance. Um, my whole family ended up joining me. I would say we landed you know sort of in a right wing modern orthodox centrist orthodox type of place. And so Jew in the City really is an outgrowth of my story, which is um, you're free to disagree with this way of life, but at least know what we are and what we're not. Um, it would have really helped me to have a more broad picture of what Orthodox Jews are and are not. And I don't feel like that information was accessible to me based on lack of information, sort of a, you know, a skewed media approach on the community. And really the most, I would say, dysfunctional, abusive, negative stories continuing to come out and all the nice, decent people never really uh, making it to the news. For the people who missed it, because you skipped right past it, you founded an organization called Jew in the City, basically to combat negative stereotypes, right? And Or to combat misinformation. So, yeah, so it's a nonprofit started off to basically harness the power of social media uh, to tell the stories that we might not see in traditional media told. Um, and really, at first, it was kind of like, my one voice. And then as the organization grew, we started to feature Orthodox Jewish all-stars. So that looks like Emmy winners and Olympians and uh, Nobel Prize winners. And to just show that like it's possible to be fully observant, um, living an Orthodox life, but not sort of be in that mold that people see as Orthodox. And also not to be like an awful human being. Like, again, are there crooks, creeps, and extremists in the Orthodox community? Of course. And then there's a whole bunch of us that are not part of that, whose stories are rarely uh, told. I remember being at one of your events and I met your parents and I was talking to them about how they had followed you into orthodoxy when, when you were still quite young, right? Were you in your early 20s when they became religious after you did? Um, I started at 16. My father was probably the most anti-orthodox influence in my life. My earliest memories of him coming home from uh, Mount Sinai, where he did his residency, he treated Hasidic patients there. He told us they're dirty, they're smelly, they're ignorant, they can't speak English. And so when I started on this journey, he thought that he had lost me to a cult. And I basically challenged him. I said, if you think I'm ruining my life and the life of your unborn grandchildren, I was 16 at the time, please save me, but you have to learn something before you can convince me to listen to you. So he essentially began to study in order to convince me to leave this horrible thing that I had started to do. And after about a year of study, he was almost 50 years old. I was about 17, 18. 
he said to me one day, you were right and I was wrong. It's time to play catch up. And again, my parents stayed where I was. Nobody went off the deep end where, you know, we're very much integrated in the world, but it's really um, a, a spiritual, I would say, like a way of life for us. I probably met him 10 years ago. I remember saying like, I'm going to, I'm going to send you to talk to my parents. And I always <laughs> wanted to hold up the, you know, Alice and Joseph's dad actually became Orthodox <laughs> after she challenged him too. <laughs> uh, my, my father will tell you that I'm a, a, I'm a tough cookie. I, I'm, I'm stubborn, but I think that's exciting. You know, with the work yeah. that we're doing in Hollywood now, I think it's sort of that sense of persistence and not giving up um, because my father is basically as difficult as taking on Hollywood. Uh, so, you know, hopefully more successes. Meanwhile, you're never allowed to talk to any of my four daughters. Don't give them any ideas. <laughs> no of ideas. That, that level of suasion over their dad. <laughs> you mentioned Hollywood, and I think it's a good place to start with like stereotypes, dealing with Jews and Hollywood, portrayal of Orthodox Jews in Hollywood. Like it's a complicated thing. Can you sort of unravel it for us? Yeah, so I think there's sort of three basic categories that we see is problematic in Hollywood. One is, um, you know, the extreme Orthodox Jew. The second is the neurotic, pushy, cheap, greedy, secular Jewish trope. But I think probably Orthodox Jews could also be like that. And the third piece is the erasure of Jew uh, Jews of color. Those are kind of the three categories that we're looking at. And we're not talking about stereotypes of Hollywood executives. We're talking about stereotypes in TV and movies, right? In the depictions themselves. Last year, we launched this Hollywood Bureau. We've been trying to tell our story, you know, a more nuanced story of the Orthodox community since our founding in 2007. And the truth is that it seems like the further we go in time, while we're seeing more positive depictions of other minority communities, characters that are not the stereotypes in the Black and Muslim and Hispanic communities, uh, for the Orthodox community, we sort of see more and more negative stories of either extremist Jews, like in the nurses episode where uh, the character won't take, you know, a dead Goyim bone, even though this is not, um, you know, part of Jewish law, or the continuous stories of people being celebrated for leaving orthodoxy. So kind of the only way you can be a complete Jew is if you leave your observance behind. And so it was frustrating to see, like, why do the portrayals of orthodox Jews not get better? Um, in passing last summer, someone mentioned to me a woman named Sue Obeidy, who I saw is the head of Muslim Pack Hollywood Bureau. And I started Googling this and I see that the Muslim community has all of these relationships with studios, with networks, and they are involved as their stories are being told. They are in the room with writers, with consultants to make sure that the characters will not be perfect characters, but they're whole and complete Muslim characters. And I thought to myself, wait, I thought Jews run Hollywood. What does the Muslim community know that we don't know? Like, this is the key to what we've been trying to do. Social media is not enough when the stories are continuously negative on Netflix, on TV shows, in movies. And so I posted on Instagram to our fans, we need to start a Hollywood bureau like the Muslims have. And the truth is that I tried to tag MPAC Hollywood Bureau on Instagram, and I accidentally tagged NAACP Hollywood Bureau, which at that point I realized, wait, the Black community also has a Hollywood bureau? I hop onto Google, and I Google uh, Asian Hollywood Bureau, I discover CAPE, C-A-P-E. And at that point, I realized that everyone but the Jews has a Hollywood Bureau. And at that point, I realized, well, if everyone has one but us, then we'll just start one too. If the Muslim community only had one, I would have said to myself, wow, they must know something we don't know. But if everyone has one and we don't, then we're just being stupid. And someone has to just be bold enough to try to create this. And so that's exactly what we did. So Last fall, I started talking to Sue Obeidy at Muslim Pack Hollywood Bureau. I found out what their programs consist of. I found out, you know, 
what kind of staffing they have, what kind of studies they do. Uh, she started making intros. And then at this point now, after, you know, meeting this one who introduced me to the next one, we've now been in meetings with NBC, CBS, Disney, Writers Guild of America, and more. We are raising money now for a minority impact study with a major academic institution uh, to not just show that uh, there's bias of Jews in media, but also that when people uh, read these stories or watch these shows, it makes them like Jews less, also makes us like ourselves less. And so um, this was originally meant to just be an Orthodox Bureau because I mistakenly thought hey, Jews are in Hollywood. If secular Jews are depicting themselves like Seth Rogen is and Woody Allen is, like, who are we to tell them not to? What ended up happening was when we announced that we were doing this, a lot of non-Orthodox Jews in Hollywood reached out to say, hey, can you make this broader? Um, we're not Orthodox and we also don't like how our depictions are going. And at that point, I realized, like, you know, as a people, we like to disagree a lot. We have a lot of little ways that we divide ourselves into boxes, but the Muslim Pack Hollywood Bureau does not have a religious group and a not religious group. They're representing the entire community. And, you know, 15 million small, um, we felt like we really have to be there to hear um, what Jews from across the spectrum are feeling, um, how we're feeling dehumanized, you know, what problematic portrayals are out there, um, and be the voice for, you know, the, a unified Jewish community. So when you're in the room with an executive at NBC, like, what are you asking them? What are you telling them? What are you hoping to sort of do with the Bureau? So, you know, the first thing is we have to prove that we're having a minority experience. And that's really difficult because in Hollywood, Jews are not considered a minority. So it's really just even trying to change the conversation to begin with. I would say that the easier places for Hollywood execs to understand, Jews of color, they can understand, are people who are minorities, but not because they're Jewish, but because they're people of color. Um, and we're starting to sway them so that they can see that Orthodox Jews are identifiable on the street. Um, Mark, you know, you wrote an amazing op-ed in the Wall Street Journal about how identifiable Jews are sort of the most targeted these days. And I would say even living in a modern Orthodox world, my daughter just wrote to me from sleepaway camp. She was in Dorney Park yesterday with, um, you know, her campers. I love Dorney Park. Uh, Philly. Well, there's a bunch of anti-Semites there because they, you know, told these girls in skirts and there were men with yarmulkes, you know, go away Jews. And they were making fun of how they were dressed. So it's like when we explain experiences like this, that, you know, the depictions that you're doing on the screen, A, we're not in the room when you tell our stories and you're breaking your own rule, you know, about us, not without us. So we have to be in the room when our stories are constructed. And then there is an immediate effect of that. Then when you tell these stories, dehumanizing us, when we are standing on the streets uh, in the last year, both of my daughters were called Kike and Jew just around, you know, our house and my friend's house. Um, we're identifiable and that puts targets on our back. You know, it's so funny, of course, I've talked about this on the show. When I wrote that op-ed, a lot of people, including some Orthodox Jews, erroneously thought I was saying it's the Orthodox Jews' fault for looking so Jewish. They should stop appearing Jewish. When, of course, I was saying the opposite, that they're the ones who have the courage to take the brunt of the hatred by being so public. So thank you for bringing that up. But you're doing a very positive thing and I don't want to dwell in the negativity, but I'm just betting, and I'm betting you're not going to name names, but I'm betting that there have been serious Hollywood Jews who have reached out to you offline and said, you know, good, keep up the good work, but I'm not going to go public. And and I, I'm curious, I'm not going to out myself as a Jewishly concerned Jew. My sense is that Hollywood is filled with Jews and some of them are somewhat observant in some way or another. They're keeping kosher or they're lighting candles Friday night or whatever, and they're not publicly coming out as Jews and they're not taking up the cause. They're leaving it to you. Am I right about that? And, and if so, does that anger you? 
you're completely right that we've heard from numerous Jews within the Hollywood world who have said, this is great, but I will not put my name on this publicly. And sort of the interesting piece of this is that we really did go to non-Jews first by going to the NAACP Hollywood Bureau and to the Muslim Pack Hollywood Bureau. You know, I came to them to say, um, we don't feel safe having this conversation. Number one, some of the biggest challenges we face in Hollywood is our own. So that means that we are the ones, you know, doing these negative portrayals. And it means we're also the ones that are maybe not being so open about letting people on staff observe. Um, I've also heard a whole bunch of stories of non-observant Jews, you know, making it difficult for observant Jews to keep kosher, to, you know, observe Shabbat. Um, I just spoke to, uh, you know, one executive who said he brought people to a kosher restaurant. And when some of his, his secular Jewish brethren realized that, you know, they were about to eat a kosher steak, they were horrified that, you know, he was doing this to them. So we have both people that want to speak out um, in the Jewish community and don't feel like they can. We have some people in our community that are making the job more difficult. And then there's just this whole conversation that, you know, we're kind of bringing to the non-Jewish diversity, equity, and inclusion people to say, um, you don't understand the dynamic that we're experiencing. Um, you need to help us feel safe to have this conversation publicly. So can you give us an example of a really bad depiction of Jews in recent pop culture and then a really good, like, nuanced depiction of Jews, um, in your opinion? I mean, so I would say um, what I referenced before this nurses episode, it was probably the first time in our knowledge that um, an anti-Semitic episode was pulled from a network because it was so egregiously bad. And let me also note that the people that produce the show are Jewish. So this is a show that started off in Canada. Um, it's called Nurses. It's not a particularly good show. Um, it ran in Canada two years ago without a peep of anyone saying anything about it. A year ago, uh, NBC took the content. They were low on content due to COVID. One of, our write, one of our readers reached out and asked us to take a look because it was so egregious. Um, it starts off with this boy who um, skips uh, services to play basketball. And because God is an angry and vengeful God, he gets run over by a car. His legs get busted. He's now in the hospital bed and um, he's told that he's going to have to get an organ donation, a bone graft from a non-Jew. Their Yiddish is very bad and they say a goyim bone. They can't even you know, properly uh, use Yiddish correctly uh, in the script. And then the father and son are afraid. Um, it could be from an Arab or a woman. Just in case you didn't think that those people with those curly uh, side curls were weird enough, they also hate Arabs and women. And then the nurse says back, or it could be an Arab woman. Um, and then the kid at the end of the episode goes home in a wheelchair because he would rather be uh, paralyzed for the rest of his life rather than take uh, a non-Jewish bone. So that was probably one of the worst episodes in recent times, just because it wasn't even based on reality. Um, you know, it's one thing to say, stop always highlighting the worst of our community. I would say to something that the Muslim community has said, um, stop highlighting terrorists only. Like, yes, terrorists exist, but like we've seen a whole lot of Muslim terrorists and we're ready for a new storyline. So I have a feeling like that at this point about sort of the story of leaving observance. Yes, those stories exist. Yes, those stories are painful. Yes, they deserve to be told. But we've seen a whole lot of those stories. And like we could use to see some Jews that want to stick around in observance because it somehow brings positivity to their lives. But I would say, you know, the episode on nurses was especially egregious just because it wasn't even based on, you know, real Jewish law. In terms of the positive depictions, there's not that many that we can really um, look to. I would argue that Schtissel is probably one of the best we've seen. 
out of the Faridi community, just because the most basic thing is that the characters are humanized. I think that that's actually but Jesselmania. The first time I saw a modern Orthodox black hat Yeshiva University grad smile when I was a teenager, I almost fell off my seat because I didn't think that Orthodox men were allowed to smile. And I was like, wow, the rabbi lets you smile. So I think the fact that the Schissel characters are depicted with a range of emotions and they're humanized um, has been very positive. I think the bar should be higher than human. Um, <laughs> I would like to see a hero occasionally. Um, but, you know, human, I think, is definitely something that we're going for. What about my campaign to have normal conservative Jews on TV? I think there's only, in, in my research, this is my entirely self-serving quest, I think there's one show in the history of TV in which some, you know, basically mainstreamy conservative-ish Jews have just like decided to light candles because it's Friday night. And that was Transparent, which now is a show that's loathed for other reasons. But I don't think that ever happened. There are more Orthodox Jews on TV, I put to you, Alice and Joseph, than there are conservative Jews who have some level of weekly observance in their lives. Yes. So I would say the choices we generally see are Jerry Seinfeld, Fran Drescher, where it's basically just sort of ethnic and not specifically said, but certain mannerisms and you kind of know they're Jewish, or it's the other extreme. It's the chassid that doesn't smile and doesn't like women. There's right. basically nothing in between. Uh, let alone one of those, you know, nice reformadox or reform people who's just super into their reform temple. They're no, I've never seen one on TV. So you know what I heard? Actually, I didn't see it, but I heard the one Wonder Years um, had a nice, um, maybe like bar mitzvah episode recently. I didn't personally see that myself. Um, but there's definitely, like, we, we went onto Twitter to ask people, you know, what's a movie with a Jewish hero? And like, we did not come up with so many, um, you know, good possibilities in the Twitterverse. There were very few that came out there. Um, School Ties was one of them. And then that gets you into the issue of, well, it was played by a non-Jew, you know, so the, the guy's facing anti-Semitism in this waspy school. And it's like, it's not even a Jew who's playing that part. And his yeah. heroism is he eventually comes out as Jewish. The thing that um, is a little bit challenging about this topic is that a lot of other minority bureaus um, are saying we want to be seen more. I would say that we're actually in a whole lot of TV shows and movies. But I think really the argument that we're making is it's not that we're not being seen often enough. It's that like, I just want there to be a casual showing of um, Turning Red, like this new, you know, uh, Pixar or Disney cartoon just had like hijabs in the background. Like, can we just sort of see some of that landscape of Jews just sort of part of the scene, you know, somewhere in the background? It could be, you know, someone wearing an Israeli flag t-shirt or, you know, doesn't only have to be an Orthodox depiction. Yeah, I mean, as, as Liel said on our show, once we were talking about the film version of In the Heights, and he said, how did they make a Washington Heights with no Orthodox Jews in it? The place is filled with Orthodox Jews. <laughs> they had every other ethnic group, but no Orthodox Jews. So, you know, part of this conversation about representation is a lot about not only what are the parts and what 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 is the content of the roles, but actually who's playing them. So where do you fall in this, you know, ongoing debate about who should, who can and should play Jewish characters? You know, so it's a good question. Um, I think that we should certainly be allowed to be part of the conversation. If this conversation is happening for other minority communities, the one thing that makes me really angry is this idea of kind of like sit down and shut up. Like the father on Mrs. Maisel's, you know, basically told Jews, you know, I'm an actor. And, you know, I guess my question is, would he have said this to another minority community? If the disabled community, the LGBT community, if another community was saying that he shouldn't have played that part, would he have said that to them? Or is only like for the Jews that we are told it's okay, you know, we, we can do the acting there. I think, you know, the question is, 
is the um, the non-Jews playing the Jewish part? Are they doing it with a certain affect? Are they doing it with certain... I'll tell you, like, you know, Mrs. Maisel's, I watched, you know, the first few seasons. The last episode I watched, I guess his parents, the ex-husband's parents are Jewish. Maisel and her parents are not Jewish at all. And I'm just watching the two fathers and you have one father who's like, so neurotic and cheap and like trying to get like, you know, some reimbursement for like a few pennies. And the other father is telling his son about like, there just seems so like power hungry and we're going to take control, son. And just in that moment, I was like, this is disgusting. Like, I don't want to watch any of this. And so I think like, that's the stuff that bothers me. Are you keeping these uh, stereotypes and these negative associations with Jews uh, perpetuated by, um, you know, doing these characters? Um, you know, one thing for the female parts, and so Melina Saval, who's an editor over Variety, wrote a very important piece about Hollywood's caricatures of Jews. She says that for the female roles, uh, Jewish women are considered kind of too unappealing. Like we're not kind of attractive enough to play the heroine. So they will give those parts to the Helen Mirrens, you know, and to uh, whoever was supposed to pay, play the Joan Rivers part, those parts will go, and, and you know, um, Mrs. Maisel, those parts will go to non-Jewish women because, you know, Jewish writers and producers are supposed to think Yiddish and cast British. Alison Josephs, founder of Jew in the City and now the Jew in the City Hollywood Bureau. Thank you so much for being our Jew of the Week. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. For more about Allison and her work, check out JewInTheCity.com. And now, time for Mazel Tov's. Last week, I stole the Mazel Tov and gave it to our team here at Tablet Studios. This week, I am turning that Mazel Tov outward and giving it to you, all of you, our listeners, our fans. You make this show what it is, and we are so grateful to all of you. And if you'd like to donate to our fundraiser and be part of the Mystery Box giveaway, check out tabletm.ag mysterybox. And thank you. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Stephanie Butnick, with Mark Oppenheimer and Liel Leibovitz. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. Our team includes Courtney Hazlett, Tanya Singer, Sarah Fredman Ader, Daron Risquet, and Sam Hacker. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Donate to our fundraiser at tabletm.ag mysterybox. Get unorthodox swag at bit.ly slash unorthoshirt. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Mailbox theme by Steve Barton. Send us snail mail. We're at P.O. Box 20079, New York, New York, 10001. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Douglas Alpert at Congregation Cola Meet in Kansas City, Missouri. We come to you from the Tablet Studios wrapping paper room where we are busy assembling our mystery fundraiser gifts. All right, I'm out. Shalom, friends. Shalom, friends.